I have a friend named Dorothy, and she's a really good friend. And Dorothy knows that I would never do anything that was really wrong. There's a certain young man that Dorothy likes. In fact, she's very fond of him. And Dorothy would never speak to this man again if he ever did anything to hurt me, Lorelei. So I think this young man had just better know that, well, Dorothy thinks she's in love with him. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm Samantha Ellis. I'm Kimberly Pierce. This week, we have a very special guest, accomplished author Christina Rice, whose first book, Anne Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, was published in November of 2013, and whose second book, Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, which tackles the complicated legacy of actress and sex symbol Jane Russell, is slated for release on June 15th. Christina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. I have to admit, when I learned that a new Jane Russell book was coming out and that we'd be having this discussion, before I started reading, I sort of built up a few preconceived notions about what kind of person would devote so much of their life to chronicling the life of a person like Jane Russell. For those of you who don't know about Jane off screen, she built a very notorious reputation in Hollywood and beyond for her outspoken political views, particularly later in life. When I read the introduction to your book, though, I could see that you approach this from a similar angle as I would have as a person who clearly admires her glamour and on-screen persona, but maybe struggles a little bit to relate to her off-screen. Could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write about Jane and what kind of struggles that you faced with her views and her legacy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I decided to write about Jane on the recommendation of my publisher, the University Press of Kentucky. So my, my previous book you mentioned about Anne Dvorak was this just unbelievable passion project that I'd worked on for 15 years. Like Anne's my baby in a way. So I've been collecting memorabilia on her. I have a giant collection. And so I certainly view one of my roles in life is to kind of carry the legacy of Anne. I knew that was something I would never be able to replicate. And I didn't necessarily have an interest in replicating my experiences with Anne. And you know, once the book that book came out and it had just taken me so long, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm done. I, I that that's the thing I did. You know, I wrote a book. And you know, after a while, I started thinking, well, okay, I know how to do it now. Cause with Anne, I didn't know how to write a book on an actress. And during that process, I became a librarian. So I work at Central Library in downtown Los Angeles. And so I, I, you know, at this point, you know, I know my resources, I know my research, I know how to put a book together. And so when I thought about doing it again, I honestly just didn't know who I wanted to write about. So there are lots of, of actors and actresses that I admire, but a lot of them already have books written about them. So I didn't really want to retread. I knew that I wanted to write about a woman. I, I really enjoy writing about women and telling women's stories because I think a lot of time in the past, the authors have been men. So it's important to me to write about women. And I went to my publisher and said, hey, I really don't know who to write about. And they came back with, well, what about Jane Russell? It was somebody I'd never thought about writing about. I absolutely love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I had suffered through the outlaw at some point in my life because I thought I had to as a film fan. Other than that, I just hadn't seen any of her movies. I was kind of vaguely aware of some of her 
you know, of that she was very faith-based and some of her more outspokenness, which did get, give me pause. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to tackle that. And I kind of suspected maybe that was why nobody had written about her because I was surprised to see there weren't any books about her other than her own 1985 memoir. So yes, I was hesitant. And so I started doing a little bit more research about her and, you know, realized, well, she's incredibly complex. Once I realized that she had devoted a huge portion of her life to advocating for international adoption, I found that absolutely fascinating. And just that contradiction of somebody who was incredibly faith-based, but who also was promoted by Howard Hughes as the ultimate sex bomb, which she was not off screen. I felt like it was interesting to explore that, to just see how she kind of lived with that contradiction. And I just felt if I could present her views to the reader and just let the reader judge for themselves what they want to think about. So like, you know, my, I, I have very, you know, complex views on Jane. I love her in some respects. I'm frustrated by her in other respects. I think she would have been an absolute hoot to hang out with, but I didn't want to judge her. I, I just want the reader to do that because, you know, some people maybe agree with her views. Other people probably loathe them, but I hate to see her just reduced to this or that because there's a lot going on with her. And so I hope that's what comes across on the page. And I hope people can just, you know, come to their own conclusion on how they feel about her. For starters, I definitely want not only to commend you on writing about women as a woman, because I think that's so important. And that's something that Kim and I were just discussing before we started recording. But also, I love old Hollywood biographers who write about stars who haven't had books written about them. I feel like one day when I finally tackle that, those are going to be the kind of people that I target. So I think it's amazing that someone with the complicated legacy that Jane Russell has, hasn't had that tackled. So it's so cool that you were the one to do that. Thank you. But I definitely think that complicated legacy is intimidating. So it it was certainly intimidating for me. And I had to mull it over for a while before I decided, no, I I think I can do this. And I think I can be fair to her. and, And I hope I was. I imagine. And and yeah, I would definitely say that it, it comes through on the page. One of the other things that we were discussing before recording, I think for me, the biggest mystery when it comes to Jane is whether she was comfortable with her own public perception. I think on one hand, she was so outspoken and so opinionated and, and such a strong woman that you would imagine that she was in control of her own self-image on screen. But on the other hand, we hear all of these conflicting reports about things that she wasn't comfortable with when it came to marketing strategies surrounding her films and things like that. So I'm wondering what your take is on that. Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating things about Jane is her professional relationship with Howard Hughes, which lasted decades. So, you know, he absolutely adored her. He obviously fixated on her physical attributes, and that was what he promoted. You know, he, he micromanaged how she was presented on screen, like micromanaged her costumes. You know, in the book, I include, I think it's like an 800-word memo about a dress that she wears in Macau, and it, I don't know how many times the word nipple is used. So he focused on her bizarrely, and he micromanaged the poster, how she looked in advertising and in posters. He didn't manage how she presented herself off screen, though. And so I think a bizarre advantage for her not being under the thumb of a major studio that tended to try to, you know, concoct this 
well-rounded persona that an actor was expected to carry off screen and on, he didn't seem to care what she did off screen. So she was always very outspoken, like about her Christian faith. Like that was always known. And there were articles being written about that really early on. Everybody knew she married a football player when she was really young. So she was kind of able to control her off-screen image, which was at complete odds with the on-screen image. And so I think she didn't always like what I think he, he, he frequently crossed a line with her because what he did tended to be so outrageous. She accepted that if she was going to be a film star, like she knew what she looked like, like she knew that, you know, her physical appearance was her bread and butter. So she knew that that was how she had a career and she could live with that. She was an actor. She was playing these roles. She wasn't these roles. And she, I think she felt people knew the difference because she was just so outspoken about how she was in real life. But at the same time, he would, he would cross the line and she would get extremely irritated. You know, and when she was really young, because she got cast in The Outlaw when she was 19. So she kind of went along with it, but, you know, would sometimes draw the line in the sand. And by the time we get to the French line, which is, you know, in 1953, 54, Hughes really crosses that line in a couple of respects. And she finally says, no more. Like, we're, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. So I think for her, it was always like, yes, I have to do this if I want to have this career. And having this career lets me do these things off screen that I want to do. But at the same time, eh, he, he could push her. So I think it's really interesting how she constantly had to straddle that line with what she could accept. And then when it was too much, which I just think is fascinating and that the two of them were able to navigate this for, for decades, but still stick with each other. I love how public their relationship is and how much we know about it. And I think that's another fascinating thing, too, because especially in regards to the 1950s, I love learning about the fan magazines and publicity and how they shaped the lives and the perception of these stars. You, you bring up a really fascinating point that Jane wasn't quite controlled to the extent of a lot of like the MGM stars or a lot of the other studio system stars of the 50s. So would you say that that has anything to do with her legacy, that she was sort of able to write her own narrative? Yeah, you know, I, I do think that that is part of it. Although I think a lot of what we call controversial things Jane said did come much later on in her life. You know, and it's very specifically, there was an, an interview with her in the early 70s in Esquire magazine where she says some things. Like when I came across that article, I went, oh, Jane, I was hoping this wasn't, I was hoping that I wasn't going to find something like this. And then there we was all a, have those moments when it comes to the stars we love. Yeah. Well, because, you know, in her autobiography, in her memoir, she's, she's very forthcoming. And that's, you know, the, the one thing for me as a, as a biographer that was a gift is that Jane is so straightforward. Jane doesn't try to put on airs about herself, and she's a very reliable narrator. And when you read her book, even though she, she throws out the, the Bible verses a lot, you know, she comes across as somebody, though, who you know, isn't very judgmental. And then there's this Esquire article, which is kind of the opposite, but that's like one example. And then there was an interview she did, I think it was with The Guardian, like in the, the 2000s, where she refers to herself like as a, like a mean, bigoted something or other. Those are the two things that tend to be referenced in terms of the controversy. And it's so strong that it's easy to latch on to that. But otherwise, you actually don't come across that a whole lot. 
and you know everybody who I've you know encountered who knew her just said you know she just like rolled with it and just loved people and didn't judge so it's so just contradictory so I think anything the the interviews she gave like in the 40s and 50s they present Jane as very authentic but I don't think particularly controversial it was just kind of Later on in her life, has she kind of started echoing some of these conservative talking points that we've been living with for the last couple decades? Is that you start to see that that aspect of her more? But like overall, if you look at it big picture, like no, like she was somebody, yes, very honest, but did genuinely seem to just really love people and seem to always encourage people and you always got along with women great, which is, you know, you don't always see that in Hollywood, but she wasn't intimidated by women. She wasn't threatened by women. She was always very secure with herself. And so she always really encouraged people and loved to see people succeed. And so I hope when people read the book, they're able to see both sides of this, that it's not just this one thing. Like, I think with Jane... I think that, you know, the, the, the positives of her certainly outweigh the negatives. And so I hope that's not the, the focus of it. Yeah. I mean, as I sort of touched on before, I definitely come at this from a very similar sort of stance. I, I've known about Jane pretty much as long as I've known about old Hollywood. I, you know, saw her, of course, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That was one of the very first old movies that I ever saw and enjoyed. So I have always been absolutely in love with her glamour and her image. And uh, I think she always just looked so fascinating. And she always really was fascinating to me, especially um, like her characterization, you know, Dorothy and everything. But finding out, you know, seeing some of those, as you mentioned, those really polarizing views that she discussed, it, it sort of put me off of her. So I think it's so important and so amazing that there's this book coming out that really highlights the good and the bad. I I do want to get Kim's opinion as well. Kim, what would you say is your, how familiar were you with Jane before coming into this? What kind of films had you seen and what was your opinion of her? Uh, Like most, my introduction was probably Gentlemen Before Blondes. She was one of those figures, though, that's just always been around. I mean, I remember stumbling on those outlaw pictures since before I knew what most of it was, before I understood Howard Hughes and all of that. So she's, I was new about this glamorous figure who there was the breasts that people were excited about and really enjoyed the Las Vegas story. Macau, I remember watching, you know, I've done kind of dotted through, I wouldn't call myself a expert, but I've always, Gentleman Bird for Blondes has always defined her persona for me. What I found fascinating in diving into this book is how you tap into the complexity of her sexuality. Because I've always found she defines this self-assured that she's this woman in the 50s who, is there anyone there for love? You see her looking at these men, you see her enjoying these men. She's really being outwardly sexualizing them and she's not getting punished like you see. And she's, this has always been Jane Russell for me. But then as as I was reading, particularly through the outlaw portions, it suddenly dawned on me how much of the sexuality was, this image was composed by men and how men created so much of this image and how much they had a hand in it. I think to the Breen memo you post in relatively early in in the book where it's just shot of breast here, breast, 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 breast. And I'm just, I, it just flabbergasted me and it left me really unsure even how to process 
my views there. It's just such, you highlight this complexity to her. And I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. And I think if you really stop and, and, and think about it, she spent her entire life with like people talking about her breasts, mm-hmm. like how, you know, like how many times, you know, we're all women. How many times have you met a guy and you suddenly, you just see his eyes instantly dart down. Right. Like imagine spending your whole life, like having that up on billboards and, and that being such a focus, you know, and that was just something that she kind of like had to live with her entire life. You know, I, I, I didn't do this, but I was very tempted. I started compiling like a list of all the ways that her bus line was <laughs> described. And I was tempted to put a glossary at the back of the book. That would have been amazing. I was just about to say the same thing. Yeah. Maybe I should like dig it up and like post on my website, but yeah, like so much of the focus was there and that people, even to this day, people are, feel very comfortable just joking about Jane Russell's breasts, just making those quips or, you know, like I'll post things on social media and people are like very comfortable posting things. Like I, you know, I look at it and like, oh man, do you have to do that? Like, really? But I think, you know, we've spent like 80 years being told, like, it's okay to talk about Jane Russell in such an objectified manner, you know, and I can't say that I wasn't guilty of it. But as I wrote about her and got to know her, I'm like, oh, my God, I would hate to have somebody just talk about my breasts for my entire life. But I think it is to her credit that, you know, later on, she agreed to be the Playtex bra spokesperson that she just learned, you know, you have, you know, what do you do? Like, you just need to joke about it and be tongue in cheek about it. And, you know, later on in the fifties, she had kind of like a, a Christian group that a Christian pop group that she recorded with, and they would get re- referred to in, you know, kind of unsavory terms. And the other women would be, Oh, that's terrible. And Jane's just like, eh, at least they're talking about us because she learned to live with it. But, you know, so I think it's like to her credit that, you know, she just learned how, how to roll with being objectified. And when I started researching the book, you know, I thought, gosh, there's been so much written about Howard Hughes and so much written about the outlaw. So there'll be a lot for me to really draw from. And when I started looking at how the outlaw has been written about over the years, she's always just treated as an object. It's never like, this is actually like a person and a very young person. She's 19, 20 years old when she's being splashed across magazines and billboards and people talking about her in a way or people being appalled and saying horrible things about her. So that's just a lot to like absorb from a very young age. And through it all, she still kind of managed to keep her head about it. So she I definitely took it credit. in stride. Yeah. Like she certainly just, just learned to, to do that, which, you know, not everybody could. I mean, she was somebody who certainly could have been chewed up and spit out by Hollywood quite easily. And she wasn't. So, and I think that's to her credit. It's amazing to me, you know, she spent an entire decade not really not making movies like the 1940s. She only has three movies released and her nickname at one point was the motionless picture actress. And so the fact that she could have a career is incredible because a studio or, you know, can put out as much publicity as they want. And that doesn't mean an audience is going to actually respond to it so that she was able to, because of the Howard Hughes publicity and in spite of the Howard Hughes publicity, able to actually have a career and become a name that we're still talking about all these years later is, I think, a testament you know, to, to her and her personality and how she was able to figure out how to make it all work for her. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. That's actually, I will say that's one of the things that I was the most surprised to learn when I was learning about Jane is how few films she actually made. 
the fact that she's such a legend and compared to the likes of Marilyn and all of these other amazing old Hollywood stars of the 40s and 50s when I mean I looked at her IMDb she has 33 credits and only about 24 25 feature film appearances so it's really incredible to see that yeah absolutely and as as a biographer that that was great for me because Anne Dvorak made like over 50 films (laughs) to like hunt them all down and try to find something interesting about all of them so I appreciated that Jane Russell's filmography is not quite as expansive. It's, it's, yeah, it is incredible that she, for somebody who's as well known, really didn't make that many movies. And they were, a lot of them were just kind of made, you know, in the night, in the first half of the 1950s. When you were diving in, I mean, obviously everyone looks to something like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes as the essential go to. Was there one of her films that you discovered where it was just like, this is a gem and people don't talk about it? Yeah, I mean, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, first and foremost, like hands down her best film. I don't even think it's a matter of opinion. I just, I love it so much. And, you know, it was her favorite role. And it's, and she always felt like Dorothy Shaw was the closest you see to Jane Russell on film. The movie I was really surprised by was Foxfire with Jeff Chandler. I think it's fascinating and I hope people will discover it. So it's, it's interesting and it takes place in a small town and it talks about miscarriage, which I don't think you see a whole lot. And even though it does have pe- white people cast as, as Native Americans, there's actually a, like a Czechoslovakian actress playing like an Indian princess was just, just like bizarre and horrifying. It is an interesting look at like race relations in a small town. And it's gorgeous. Like it shouldn't be a gorgeous film. It's like a stunningly gorgeous film. So that was one that I I really, really enjoyed that I hope people will discover along with The Tall Men, which is, you know, the big Western she did with Clark Gable. I think that movie is just a lot of fun and her and Gable are, you know, fantastic. And people tend to think of, of Robert Mitchum and Jane as like this great screen couple, which they are like those two tore it up on screen. But I think she plays off Gable really, really well. So I think it's, it's really fun to watch the two of them together. I love that you bring up Foxfire because we actually covered that one for the podcast. I want to say last year, maybe the year before, because it had a fairly recent DVD and Blu-ray release. But yeah, I couldn't agree. That is the cinematography on that film is amazing. And Talk about films other than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes that really show off Jane in like this gorgeous Technicolor and these gorgeous costumes. Like that's the one to see for sure. And she, she's amazing in it. She plays a really complex character. She does. And her outfits in that, you know, that was like an independent production. Howard Hughes had nothing to do with it. And so the, the costume designer gave her all like high necked. I mean, they're still like super sexy outfits, but they're all very high necked because Jane's was like, I'm done having things that, She's like, I don't want any more strapless dresses <laughs> being under Trapless the dresses are so hard to wear, too. I can't imagine wearing them in every single film. Oh, yeah, I've been so uncomfortable, like figuring, you know, keeping those dresses up. Yeah, they must have been so uncomfortable. So I think she was happy to have like gorgeous, gorgeous dresses that were not strapless or low cut in that film. Adequate support. Yay. <laughs> I was just about to say, regardless of howard hughes's influence and superior design work on <laughs> airplanes and bras uh, there still wasn't quite the equipment that we have nowadays the, the bra that she didn't wear exactly he did not wear it but he always he never wanted the audience to think jane was wearing a bra and so that was you know michael wolf was the designer on a few of those rko films and the photo that's on the cover of my book 
she's wearing this sweater. I think it was like an off, off the rack sweater that he embellished, but he had to create this very complex support system inside because there could be no bra scenes showing because as far as Howard Hughes was concerned, you know, Jane Russell defied gravity. And so he had to maintain that illusion. So the, the dress designers certainly had their work cut out for them to get Howard Hughes to sign off on, on Jane's costume. If that's not a testament to the unrealistic expectations of women, (laughs) I don't know what is. Let's design a bra to make it look like she's not wearing a bra, but we still want her breasts to be up to here. (laughs) Makes me think of the story in Star Wars to go off topic. There's no underwear in space, so don't wear underwear. (laughs) There's no underwear in space, so get that tape. Get those things taped up. You could tackle the subject of Jane Russell and feminism from so many different angles. I think she's just, again, the fact that we're coming at this from a female perspective, I think is so special. And the fact that it's taken, you know, this long to do it, I think is is such a shame. But the fact that we're doing it now is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. How did you find that research process? Where did you start? With Jane? Oh, gosh, where did I start? I started five years ago. I mean, it certainly was a different process than with Anne, mainly because so much is available online now, which wasn't before. Usually when I, when I start a project, I, I will start with there's digitized newspapers and magazines, like just to kind of get a foundation or kind of look for books and things that have already been written, just to kind of get that like grand overview, you know, and then you just dive in and try to find th- those primary resources and you know, one of the things I was really interested in, obviously, was the outlaw. And there's multiple chapters in the book about the outlaw. There could easily be an entire book about the outlaw, which I think is hilarious because the movie is so bizarre and that the advertising campaign is so much more interesting than the actual movie. And with the outlaw, fortunately, there, Russell Birdwell, who was the publicist hired to promote the film, and he was the one who had done the search for Scarlet for Gone with the Wind. His papers are at UCLA. And so being able to access what was going on behind the scenes is just absolutely incredible. And, and, you know, it's, it was day every single day, like she was a topic like the outlaw in this campaign and specifically Jane was a topic of discussion every single day that they were working on it, which to me is just fascinating that they were constantly focusing on, you know, what do we do with her? How do we do this? What do we do that? And just the bizarre things. And again, just how she was viewed by the people working on this campaign, like she was an object, you know, and oh, in this photo, her breasts look sloppy. So we'll need to airbrush them. And during all of this was when she, she did have an abortion that did not go well and she almost died. And in the middle of that, there's all of this documentation of them saying, Hey, like Jane canceled this and that her mom said, she's like really sick and not feeling well. And she actually was on death's door, which that I found fascinating. And as she starts to recover, I'm sure she physically didn't feel well emotionally. She must have just felt like hell. And all these memos are like, Jane looks terrible. Like she's clearly not getting enough sleep. And I don't know what we're supposed to do about her. And I don't think they knew what was going on, but it's just so interesting to have the one side where it's the publicity people going, Jane's being uncooperative. Jane's clearly not taking care of herself because she doesn't look good. And I don't know what to do to get her to look good. And on the other side of it, she's like at home, like trying, trying to just live and survive. And so I just found that fascinating how, again, 
she's just always viewed as an object when it comes, you know, to, to this, this massive amount of publicity in this campaign that's focused completely on her. Well, that's so great that we can actually, Jane was very open about the abortion. You devote some great content to it as well, because this is an aspect of being a woman in a woman, being a woman in Hollywood that you don't hear discussed and what women had to go through during this time. And to, you know, hear, see that she was going through this as the figure for, you know, a massive movie. It's how far reaching it was and how important of a topic reproductive rights is. And it's so great to see this finally being addressed and put to the forefront because in a lot of these books, you don't hear about it. We just hear about the glossy. We hear about the studio side. We don't hear about the person side. No, and it's certainly like is, is you know a testament to her that she did talk about it in her memoir. And I do feel like she talked about it in her memoir and that was it. Like she didn't want to dwell on it. You know, I think it's, it's incredible. And I'd asked, you know, I'd interviewed the, the woman who had been uh, the early ghostwriter for her book. And I asked her why, why, why did she do this? Like, why did she even write this book? Cause she talks about a lot of really personal things and like what compelled her to do that. And the woman said, I don't know. Like, I don't know why she wanted to put that much of herself out there. And and I was thinking about it recently and it just struck me as like for Jane, there, there was no, you know, she was either going to write a book and just bear all because that's how Jane was, or she just wouldn't do it at all. Because I think, I think she was just so honest and I don't think she had it in her to just kind of gloss things over. Like if she's going to do it, she's just going to do it. And she's not ashamed of who she was. So, but I think it's interesting that, yes, she does talk, you know, and, and when I was interviewing the ghostwriter, she's like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't put this in the book. And I'm like, okay. She goes, you know, she had this abortion. And I'm like, Jan, that's in the book. And she goes, oh, it is? I'm like, yes, she talked about it in the book. She goes, oh, okay. Um, so Jane might have grappled with it, but no, I, I, I definitely applaud her in the end. And it just puts that fine point on, you can ban abortion all you want, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Still gonna, still going to be there. Yeah. You're, I mean, all you're going to do is put women at risk. That's what you're doing. Absolutely. And talking about the complicated legacy of Jane Russell, we have, and this is really one of the first things that I learned about her when it came to learning about her as a person, apart from her films, was that she had this abortion. And then afterwards, she took such a pro-life stance. She did. So again, yeah, she's, you know, Jane, Jane's a complicated person. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, It's difficult for me personally to, or at least when I was younger, to approach her and not think of those kind of like hypocrisies, for lack of a better word. But, and it goes into the whole discussion of how well we're able to separate an actor from their work. Because Jane, if it weren't for that, I think could easily be one of my favorite actresses of the 50s. And I still think to some degree she is. It's, but it, you know, those kinds of things are difficult to contend with as a reader. They are, you know, and, and, you know, and I think, I think we all probably have people in our lives who, who do, you know, they're able to compartmentalize this, you know, where they say one thing and like do something else. And it's a bit maddening, but I don't know. I think to a degree, we, you know, we, we probably all do it. I certainly like I like I'm a huge Guns N' Roses fan man like they are my favorite band I've been obsessed with them for over 30 years and you know Axl Rose he like absolutely was physically violent with his wife 
And the, a lot of the lyrics in their songs are super misogynistic and I don't play them for my daughter. And I don't know that I enjoy them as much, but I still love them. Like they're still my favorite band. So, you know, I'm able to compartmentalize the fact I love their music. I love going to their concerts and there are aspects of them that, you know, kind of suck. But again, I think we all, but I don't want to stop listening to Guns N' Roses because I, I love their music so much. Right. So yeah, I think I'm we're, we're, we are able, yeah, as human beings, like we are for better or for worse, we are able to do that in, in, in many respects, but yeah, but there are certainly other artists that I've gotten to the point where no, maybe I can't watch their movies anymore or watch their TV shows. So yeah, it is a very, it is a very complex thing as we start to reckon with that. I think more, more, more and more at this point. It's the hard part in the study of history because the hindsight is hindsight's 2020, but we still have the historical aspect to talk about. Yeah. One of the things that sort of struck me about Jane in sort of unraveling who she was as a person, it sounds like to me, I might be off base, but I don't think she realized the kind of power that her words had sometimes. I don't think that she ever thought that anyone would take some of her thoughts seriously. I think that is a hundred percent accurate. I think she didn't, you know, I think she understood that she had this celebrity that was powerful enough that it helped fueled her foundation waif. This foundation that she operated for many years that she was hyper involved in, and that helped ease restrictions on international adoption and helped fund the international social service to facilitate adoptions. She understood that her celebrity gave her this platform and that it was very powerful. But when it came to her kind of spouting off stuff, no, I think, you know, I think she probably thought like, why does anybody care what I, you know, why the hell does anybody care what I have to say? Or, you know, why, like, why would you be so impacted? So I think absolutely that's 100%. She, she didn't realize that, you know, she was enough of a public figure that people actually do care what she had to say. And, you know, and, and when I would bring up like that Esquire article or the Guardian article, people that knew her, they go, oh, that's just Jane being Jane and didn't realize that, well, yeah, maybe that's Jane being Jane, but man, that Guardian article, people still quote it all the time and she gets dismissed very quickly because of it. And again, like that's like one article, one interview of hundreds she did over the course of her life, but it was enough that I see people say pretty horrible things about her just kind of based on this one line that she said. So yeah, I, I don't think she realized at all, you know, and I think if she knew people were saying things, referencing that Guardian article, you know, almost 20 years later, she'd probably just roll her eyes. Like, why? Like, why, why do you care? Like, why would you care what I have to say? So yeah. I think that very well may, may be in part because of her status as a sex symbol and the fact that people tried to control her you know, public persona so much. Maybe by that point in her life, she was so sort of, she, maybe she didn't think that anyone would take her seriously as a person because of the way that, you know, everyone kind of boiled down her persona to two breasts. Yeah. I don't know if she ever, you know, I mean, Jane was somebody that was, I think, remarkably devoid of ego. She always stayed like incredibly grounded. And I don't know if it was, you know, because she grew up here in Los Angeles and just, you know, had friends with parents in the industry or because she had, you know, she had a big family and she had four younger brothers who I think always kept her very grounded. And she always had a very strong support system so that 
and that she got married so young, you know, to a football player who, you know, was incredibly successful in his own right. So, you know, I think she didn't have people whispering in her ear how great she was and people with ulterior motives, the way maybe, you know, other successful people in Hollywood have. So she just never had that ego. So I don't think she ever felt that people would take her seriously or, or like, why, you know, like why, why was she so important that people should actually care what she had to say? I don't think she viewed her views as all that important, if, if that makes sense. So I think that, I think that had just kind of carried through her whole life. Like, Hey, I'm just Jane being Jane. And, you know, if you want to you know, put me on the screen and pay me money to do that, that's great. If you want to donate money to my foundation, because I'm a big celebrity, even better. But otherwise, why do you care? And I think she always felt that way. It's so, and you know, it's so interesting because she lived so long. It's hard for me not to imagine if she had lived another decade or even two longer, what she would have been like in this kind of political climate and with the invent of social media. And it's really hard not to think about the kind of public persona that she would have for herself now. You know, I, I, you know, that it probably could have gone either way. So, and we just don't know because she, right. she passed away in 2011, you know, before a lot of, a lot of what we're dealing with right now exploded. So yeah, I just don't think there's any way to know. And, but I think, you know, it, it's a credit to her that she spent the last couple of decades just being asked like ad, na- ad nauseum about Marilyn and about Howard Hughes. And I think that, and she, I think she mentioned like, the only reason people care about me is, you know, because I've outlived everyone else. But I think it's incredible that she was always willing to sit down and, and talk about Marilyn and talk about Howard Hughes and was fine, was fine being hitched to the two of them and never said a bad word about either of them. So I think it's just, a, that's a huge testimony to, to how much of an ego Jane didn't have, that she was perfectly fine being asked about them over and over and over again and people being interested largely because of those two like towering figures in her life. Right. I do think that her relationship with Marilyn is is so amazing. And it's definitely something that we've brought up on the podcast many times. You know, Ticklish Business, our, our title is after a gentleman prefer blondes quote. So it's it's hard not to bring up her relationship with, with Marilyn and her time filming that film. It, it's definitely, while I don't want to boil Jane down to one film... I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about gentlemen prefer blondes. Oh, I, I dedicated a whole chapter to it. Are you kidding? <laughs> and I have to say, like, I was again, like, I, I adore Marilyn, and so thought I have, I have a ton of Marilyn because I started buying Marilyn books, you know, thirty years ago when I was in junior high. And I thought when I got to that chapter, I'm like, I have all these Marilyn books, so man, we'll be able to dig into that, and there's going to be so much there. I'm amazed at how in some of these books, it would be a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs about this movie. Like, like why wouldn't people be writing about this film? Because, you know, it's, it's the most important film of Jane's career. And it's one of the most important films of Marilyn's career. It's an essential. It absolutely is. You know, I mean, it's the one that like launched Marilyn into the stratosphere. It's the one that I think, you know, cemented Jane's legacy as a, as a movie star. So yeah, I was super happy to devote a lot of time in the book to this film because it's so important. And I love the, the relationship these two had. Because again, I think as women, not even as women in Hollywood, I think as women, we somehow are taught early on to be pitted against each other. 
and to mm-hmm. be jealous of each other or envious of each other and to not prop each other up. And I think that, and it took me like, personally, it took me a long time to not compare myself to every single woman out there, to not let my crippling insecurities that we all have, maybe Jane didn't, but I think the rest of us probably have our own insecurities that Jane just didn't have them so that she was able to go into this film, you know, with this woman who, you know, and Marilyn just steals the screen from everybody. You know, she really, I think Jane holds her own, but Marilyn still just steals the screen from everyone she was ever on screen with. And that Jane was able to just, you know, just be her buddy and kind of be her protector in a way and just say, hey, you know, she was able to identify here's somebody that didn't have the support system I had growing up. You know, here's somebody that needs a little bit of help and and I'm going to help her. And Jane made sure Marilyn got, you know, to the set on time every day. And, you know, and you watch her if you, you know, next time you watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, focus on Jane, like just try to watch Jane and not Marilyn. And the way Jane looks at Marilyn, the way Jane reacts to Marilyn in that movie is just so charming because you can see like she genuinely appreciates her. Like she genuinely is looking at her going, this is something special. This is what's going to make this movie go over with people. And I'm so lucky to be here. So I think their relationship is just an absolute joy and should just be like a model for all women. Like we should all just prop each other up like that. Genuine female friendships on screen are so rare. Mm -hmm. And it's that's just such a refreshing part of that movie that we get to see these two women who are friends who enjoy each other's company. And it's not it's them. That movie's not about the men. It's about this this relationship between those two. Oh, absolutely. And people, you know, will say like Jane's like greatest, you know, on screen pairing was with Robert Mitchum. It's like, no, it wasn't. It was with Marilyn. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure we would be remiss if we didn't mention Robert Mitchum while we were talking about Jane. But for me, when I think of Jane's co-stars, it's it's Marilyn. Not just for Marilyn overshadowing her or, you know, stealing that film or anything. I think they are the perfect counterparts to each other. They balance each other so incredibly well. You have, you know, Jane's wit and, and not to, you know, boil it down to looks, but the, the brunette and the blonde, I, I think they're, they're so amazing. And while we're talking about costumes, the costumes in that film are just phenomenal. Iconic, oh. really. Oh, every outfit that either one of them wears in that movie is just in, absolutely incredible. Yeah. It, it just, everything about that movie is, is perfection. I just love it. So while we're on the subject, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, if you sat Jane down and asked her, what do you think she would say about her co-stars? Who, who do you think she loved working with the most? Is there anyone that she would make a note of that she wasn't as much of a fan of off screen? Yeah. I mean, Jane, you know, again, as a biographer, the nice thing about Jane is that she was interviewed a lot. There are so many interviews of Jane and she was asked about her co-stars quite often. Um, No, she seemed to love the co-stars. Like she, you know, she loved Marilyn. She obviously loved Mitchum and was like great friends with him until the day he died. Loved working with Bob Hope. She kind of handpicked Richard Egan for Underwater and loved working with him in that and Revolt of Mamie Stover, you know, loved Clark Gable, loved Jeff Chandler. She, you know, her, her co-stars, I think she, she felt like she was pretty lucky. She adored Jack Vital in, in, or Vital in The Outlaw and thinks he got the short end of the stick by having to be directed by Howard Hughes that it, you know, his career just didn't have a chance because of that. But, you know, she stayed friends with him. 
it was just some of the the directors that I think the Joseph von Sternberg was the director that she did not <laughs> that she did not like. But otherwise, no, she loved making movies. Like she, yeah, she absolutely loved making movies. I think, you know, she considered herself very lucky and had a lot of great co-stars and generally didn't really, she didn't talk trash about people. Like she really didn't. I think she, she was somebody who just genuinely liked people in general, got along with everyone. You know, she had a cousin who once commented like Jane never met a stranger. Like she just immediately got along with everybody. So I think overall, like she had a hell of a great time making movies and just really enjoyed the people that she did work with. There was a small moment in your book that jumped out and that really kind of summed it up where you talk about how her on the outlaw, just going around talking to everybody and Howard Hughes saying, you know, why are you doing that? Not being able to process how somebody could be that, just enjoy people's company that much. And that image just did so much to solidify kind of who Jane was and bring it together. Yeah, absolutely. Like she, she doesn't strike me as being like a classist person. So like on the outlaw, yeah, she would just talk to anybody on the set. It didn't matter. And, you know, there's that scene in gentlemen prefer blondes where they first show up on the boat and she just like invites everybody in and starts handing them glasses. Like, I think that's how Jane was in real life. Like she just, you know, yeah, she never met a stranger. I love that. I think she was such a born star and a born social butterfly. I have to point out too, you know, everybody talks about Marilyn being the erroneously being the first woman to have her own production studio, but Jane did as well with her first husband. So I think that that's so fascinating. She made what, four, five films under her own production? Yeah, I think they made four. So she was in two of them and then made two other ones. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily super successful, but yeah, she did. And again, like she wasn't out there saying, you know, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, she just didn't promote herself. You know, she, you know and even when it came to her Waif Foundation, like she never promoted herself. Like she it was always promote. And you know, maybe she should have promoted herself a little bit more. I think to, to, to be a little bit more high profile, but yeah, like Jane just wasn't, yeah, Jane didn't promote Jane again. Like just so that, that lack of ego is just so incredible, you know, for somebody who had as much attention as she did from such a young age. Yeah. She just, she, she didn't need to wave the flag and say, look at me and look at how great I am and look at what I'm doing. And maybe she should have some more often than she did. Right. It's a shame that she glossed over some of her own accomplishments and then in return history sort of has as well, because that wasn't something that I learned until recently, that she even had a hand in production of some of her films. I I will say probably other than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and The Outlaw, I am really partial to The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown. I think it's such a cute film. It's very campy, but But I love seeing Jane as a blonde. And the fact that I learned that she had a hand in production of that one, I think is so cool. Yeah. And she personally loved that film. So other than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, that was her favorite film, the favorite role that she played. I think it's 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 such an uneven film because it starts out like super campy fun and then gets a little bit heavy handed. So that's, you know, it's it's not my fav- favorite Jane Russell film because of that. But like that first half of the movie where she's playing, you know, the movie star that she really wasn't, but she's playing maybe the movie star that people expected her to be. It's a lot of fun. 
Absolutely. So I, I certainly encourage people to check that movie out because she felt that that movie like really captured her in a lot of ways as well. The really fascinating thing about that one is I remember the first time that I watched it, it was streaming on Netflix. And of course, that was probably like 10 years ago. And now the days of old movies streaming on Netflix are long gone. <laughs> but I definitely encourage people to seek that one out. I would say in addition to that, I, I have to mention that on Jane Centennial on the 21st of June, she is going to have three of her movies streaming on the Criterion channel. I believe it's His Kind of Woman, Macau, and Revolt of Mamie Stover. So that's really exciting. And it's so cool that it's right up against your book release as well. We're getting a lot of Jane this year. Yeah, there is a lot. You know, I was very, you know, I was very deliberate with making sure the book came out just in time for her centennial, which she like barely did it. So, you know, like the last probably third of the book I wrote during the beginning of the lockdown. So that was just bizarre that it was just, you know, I was just in this daze like the rest of us were and had just started working from home. And so I would like sit at my desk and, you know, do my work, my library works. I'm a librarian, do my library work from 7.30 to 4, take a couple hours off. And then I was just writing every night till one in the morning while the world was like, literally felt like it was falling apart. But I was very determined for this book to come out time for her centennial. So I'm glad that it is. And so that we can just, you know, just bring a lot of attention to Jane. Cause I do think, you know, she, she does deserve it. And again, you know, she's, you know, none of us are one note, we're human beings, but I think there is a lot of positive about Jane. So I, I hope this will, this will help bring that to, to people's attention. As a writer and a researcher, is there any, now money's no object, public, you know, publicity's no object, they would pick it up. Is there somebody who you would write, just love to write a book about from just a place of passion? Well, I mean, I already did it with Anne. You know, who would I like to write about? You know, so many people who I love already have books about them. Like I was going to, like Aileen McMahon was, she was the one I thought Ooh. about after Anne and my publisher steered me away from it because we're like, we like to see, all right, about somebody, you know, not more obscure than Anne. And I was actually kind of like, I'm going to do Aileen. Somebody has written a book about her. You're so kidding. I don't know if it's been picked up by a publisher yet, but yeah, there is a manuscript and somebody has already done that work. So, which I was actually a little bit bummed. So I got to actually get a sneak preview of the manuscript and it's quite good. But Aileen was the one who I really wanted to write about. Gosh, I'm not sure. I really want to write about Movieland Wax Museum that was in Buena Park. It was my favorite place in the world. So I'm, I'm hoping I can do a book about Movieland. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a book I would make it. I don't even know if a publisher would do a book on that. But in that way, I get to write about all different kinds of stars that were on display in Movieland for its you know 40 plus years in existence. So that, that is incredible. Yeah, I, I would read a book about that. Same with Aileen. I think I'm so partial to 1930s stars. It's hard to not jump on that that bandwagon, especially her specifically, because, you know, I remember watching Kind Lady and loving Mary Carlisle. I'm absolutely obsessed with her. So I'd like devour anything she's in, including that film. Where would you like our readers to go? Where can they check you out? Social media, websites, where can they learn about you? Yeah, so I have, so I do have websites, three websites. There's actually janerussellbiography.com is where they can find out about Jane. I've been doing daily posts about Jane. I am a collector. I am a compulsive collector. And so I bought way more Jane stuff than I actually needed for this book. Way, way more. 
And so I've been just posting daily photos and ephemera. So you can see that on janerussellbiography.com. Also on my Twitter account, which is at Christina Rice. And on Instagram, I think it's Jane Russell Bio. And so I post on daily on all of those. I have an author website, Christina Rice Writes. And you can see if you want to see things I do other than write about Jane Russell. And then there's andevorak.com, which I've been running for 19 years now. And during the pandemic, my family and I have been doing our own podcast, littlemissmovies.com. And that is where my husband and I make our daughter watch movies, whether she wants to or not. And then we find out what she likes about them or what she doesn't like about them. She's frequently wrong in her assessment, in my opinion. But if you want to just have something fun, or if you're looking, you know, to see if, if you have kids and want to see if maybe your kids might be interested in watching some classic films, you can see what another kid thinks about them. That is so fascinating. I hope our fans check that out. That sounds really, really cool. And if you're interested in picking up a copy of Me and Moody Magnificent, you can find it an exclusive signed copy at LarryEdmonds.com. There will be a, an in-person event on June 19th from 4 to 6 p.m. at Larry Edmonds in Hollywood, where she will be signing copies. And th- there will be a virtual event on Jane Russell's Centennial on June 21st. You can find more details about that on Larry Edmonds' site. LarryEdmonds.com and on Christina's site, JaneRussellBiography.com. You can share your thoughts on Jane Russell and Mean Moody Magnificent by sending us an email at ticklishbiz at gmail.com, via Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, or on Instagram at ticklishbiz. As always, you can find me online at Twitter on at Classic Film Geek. You can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars post at classicmoviehub.com. Kimberly, where can fans find and get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at kpierce 624 You can also check out our work over at the Ticklish Business website, journeysinclassicfilm.com. Throughout, we're going to have, I believe when this goes up, and be right smack dab in the middle of a tribute to Ray Harryhausen. So we're going to be looking at some of his films. I have my twice monthly series on the classic TV lineup in 1965 hitting. Uh, that's be wrapping up sometime in July. So lots of good stuff, lots of reviews, interviews, videos, still got lots of interviews in the pipeline. So definitely come stop by, check us out. We're also still doing that giveaway for the Fox prize packs once we get up to a thousand followers or Twitter and or Instagram. So if you haven't followed us on any of those sites, definitely stop by and help us get that to somebody because that pack keeps getting bigger. Definitely. And remember, you can listen to Ticklish Business a variety of ways, either directly at ticklishbusiness.podbe.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and Player FM. If you're listening via Apple, please help us out and leave us a review. And remember, you can support us with your dollars and get access to member gifts and bonus content over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We'll see you next time.